Well, good morning. Glad to see you're kind of excited today. We are going to uh, cover a really interesting story in the book of Luke today. Before we get to that, though, just think for a moment about the different ways that uh, you could categorize your world. If you had a, uh, I'm making this up because I don't have a business mindset, but I don't know, I suppose if you, had a, if you had a business perspective and you looked at the world, you might think of the world as this ranking from the, the, the biggest, most powerful, wealthiest companies. Those are the oil companies, the auto companies, and a little help from Walmart and Apple. Those are the big guns, right? And it goes all the way down from there to the, to, you know, mom and pop's corner store and my aunt's, you know, sewing business and so forth. Or you could take a, a look at the world and, and divide it up and see the world from different kinds of governments and say, well, there's monarchies and, and there's democracies and there are oligarchies and I don't know what those are, but I saw it in the dictionary. And then you might have a cultural perspective, right? You, you could say, well, of course, I, when I look at the world, I see a map and I see groups with, with a, a common language and an ethnicity and, and they, they eat the same kind of foods and, and maybe there's one religion in that area and, and we could take a cultural perspective. Now, when we, when we look at the Bible, we see the Bible providing us with a really simple overview. Now, the Bible recognizes the importance and the role of business and government and culture languages and, and, and nations, and God knows about all those, and He has a plan for all those. But the Bible offers us this perspective of the world. It's a spiritual perspective, and we find it in places like Colossians chapter 1. Speaking to us, he says, the, the Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of His holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So there are two kingdoms, the Bible says. Yeah, there's all this other stuff going on, but, but spiritually speaking, there are, are two kingdoms in the world. There is a kingdom of light that is led by God's Son that he loves, and there's the kingdom of darkness. Neither of these kingdoms have borders. They don't actually have a political affiliation. They don't have a flag, not really. They don't have a language or a currency. On the other hand, both kingdoms are found within every border, using every language and attempting to influence every business and every government and every institution. And we learn from the Bible that because of the pervasiveness of sin, how in, infectious it was right from the beginning, all of us begin life belonging to the kingdom of darkness. And everyone stays in the kingdom of darkness unless and until you are rescued, as this passage talks about, and redeemed and brought into the kingdom of light. It's a really simple perspective, but a true one. Today, our story in Luke is going to reveal the, uh, some of the conflict between these two kingdoms and what that looks by, look, what, what it looks like. It's, it's uh, something we don't often think about, and so this story sort of draws open a curtain for us to see things we, we don't think about and we don't see. A couple things we'll notice in this story. First of all, how absolutely miraculous it is that anyone ever moves from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. It's a miracle that it happens at all. The second thing we'll see is that these kingdoms operate with extremely different 
kinds of values. It's important for us to understand those values because we have to choose which kingdom's values will follow. Ephesians 5 says, you were, you were once darkness. You once belonged in the kingdom of darkness. And in fact, it so infected you, you could say you were dark. But now you are light in the Lord. You belong to the kingdom of light. And that so infuses into you and infects you in a, in a wonderful way that you are as light. You have to live like what you are. Live like the kingdom you belong to. Live as children of the light. Now see, again, in a, in a cultural category, when we look at the world, if you want to get it right culturally, you know, let's say you want to get it right to be Italian. Well, you move to Italy and you speak Italian, and it's really easy because everyone speaks Italian back to you. And you go to restaurants and you always get it right because they serve you Italian food. And you listen to Italian music and you learn Italian dances, and it's all really simple. It's right there. You go to the right place and you get it right in being Italian. With the kingdom of light, there's no right place. There's no right language. There's no foods that you know, well, that's okay and that isn't. You've got to think about it. You've got to think about the values. There's no right music and wrong music necessarily. You've got to think about the values and, and, and how those are reflected in all of these things in life. And you have to choose your values carefully. Choose Ephesians 5 says, the values of the kingdom of light. All right, let's jump into Luke. It's chapter 8, and we begin in verse 26. It says that they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. So if you think of a map, i got to turn around here. If you think of a map of the Sea of Galilee, it's kind of on the south east corner. Jesus has been traveling around sort of the northwest corner of the lake and now the southeast. And that's sort of, well, not enemy territory, but it's Gentile territory. And this is following the storm. If you were able to be here last week, the the disciples were sailing across the lake. They got into this huge storm. Jesus calms the storm. And I don't know this, but I'm thinking again like a disciple, and I'm thinking, wow, that was a rough night. I just hope it's a calm day. (laughs) Well, guess what? When the feet hit the beach, it's not a calm day. So, sorry, guys. Verse 27, when Jesus stepped ashore, he was met instantly by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or, or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. So we have Jesus stepping ashore, and here is this very, very dramatic scene. After their rough night on the waters, here's this dramatic. I mean, this is not something you see every day, right? When you get out of a boat, you go fishing, you get out of boats, there's someone screaming at you when you arrive on the shore. And here is this man, in a, in a dramatic fashion, displaying the most desperate of circumstances. I like one commentator described him this way. In his lucid moments, he surely realized how repulsive, unloved, and unwelcome he was. He was dehumanized 
animalized, marginalized, and both frightening and fearful. What incredible misery. See, now just think about this for a moment, not as a, as a story from a distant long time ago. Think about, think about this, this man is your, is your brother, or it's your father, or your son, or your good friend, right? And think about the kind of life he's living, right? What incredible, incredible misery. And while his circumstances seem foreign to us and extreme and uncomfortable, Maybe they're not so extreme. Well, they are extreme, but maybe they're not so unusual. Maybe this man actually displays for us an honest picture of humanity, a peek into how absolutely terrible it is to belong to the kingdom of darkness. Now, not many people have demons, as this man did, But remember this, even if you change this man's circumstances and you put him living in a fine palace instead of tombs and and give him really nice clothes and and a whole host of friends around him, you see, if if you belong to the kingdom of darkness, you are still in a terrible place. You're, You're in grave danger. Because at the very least, you have one huge problem. You belong to a kingdom that is controlled by creatures like we see controlling this man's life. It's a terrible place to be, the kingdom of darkness. Now, the, the text says that uh, he was demon-possessed. This is the NIV translation, or, or literally having demons. Now, my understanding of that, and I, I believe that this is uh, referring to when spirits, evil spirits, they are fallen angels, Uh, servants of Satan, they gain a legal spiritual right into someone's life to harass and control them at at an extreme level like we see in this individual. And that right, I believe, is normally gained through sin. So maybe this man had had, uh, cooperated or or had exercised just this, uh, this really heinous level of some kind of sin that opened him up to Satan's realm in a way that caused this attachment to these creatures. Or sometimes it can happen uh, when it's the sin of other people in someone's life. Someone who has authority, for instance, a parent has authority, spiritual authority over a child, and sometimes their very gross sins can cause spiritual attachments to demons. And these are rare things and extreme things, but this is how I believe it happens. Now, normally when we think about demon possession, and, and theologians debate this, there, it, it quickly becomes, oh, but could a Christian have a demon and the Spirit of God and all these kinds of things? And we begin to think of it in very black and white terms. Either you have a demon or you don't. And, you know, that there, I suppose that that's true. I just don't think it's helpful at all. I don't think it's helpful to any of us because there would be this temptation to think that as long as I'm in that white box, I'm safe. And that's just not true. It's not the way it works. I think this is a much more helpful way to think of it, and that is that there are levels of influence. Remember, uh, as I already said, both of these kingdoms are attempting to influence every, every institution and every person. Don't you believe that God would love to influence every person? He, he, brought, he sent His Son hoping that every 
person. He's not willing that anyone should be lost, right? He would love to influence everyone. Well, Satan's not missing out on that formula either, right? And both kingdoms are out to influence. And the question is, how much influence do you have in, from, one, from each of those kingdoms? I think a grayscale is, is much more realistic. Remember that, that even in this extreme case, and, and here, you know, we would say he's not really in much gray. He's, he's way over there on the, on the dark side. Not to go Star Wars on you, but, you know, he's, he's way over there. He, even this man with demons could hear Jesus' voice, was freed to respond to the gospel, right? He could be influenced by the kingdom of light, and he was. And it's equally true that a member of the kingdom of light, such as, oh, I don't know, me or, or you, can still be influenced by the kingdom of darkness. That's why Ephesians chapter 6 and other passages tell us that we're going to need things. We're not going to be able to count on a little white box, right? Now, it is true that we have certain absolute things in our lives that, that, that Christ has changed, and we'll look at that in a little while, but the, but the kingdom of darkness is still out there, and he says, you know what, you're going to need truth and the gospel and, and, and faith and righteousness. You're going to ha- actually have to use these things. You're going to have to latch onto the values of the kingdom of light. See, because, again, like we, we talked about last night, truth is so important, but if I abandon truth, all I can go to is a lie, and, and that's the stuff And those are the values of the kingdom of darkness. Now Jesus looks at the man, and apparently the first thing he has done is he's canceled those rights. He said, it's over. You have no longer a right to this individual. Now he belongs to me and to the kingdom of light. And he commands them out. We go on, verse 30. Jesus asked him, what's your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. And when the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. Once again, a dramatic scene. Now, uh, something interesting is going on here with names, right? It's, it's kind of interesting. We've, what we find in the Bible is that the, uh, the, the demanding and the giving of names reveals something. It reveals levels of authority or rank. If you kind of think military kind of terms, you know, the, the colonel shows up and can ask your name and rank and serial number. I don't know, whatever. No, sorry, I wasn't in the military. You can tell me how that works. But, but we find that in the, in the Bible. In fact, the, the patriarch Jacob was uh, one night wrestling with this being, right? And uh, it's kind of this mysterious, strange story. And, and Jacob's wrestling with this, with this being, and he doesn't know who it is. And he asks him his name, and, and, and this person won't tell him his name. But that person tells Jacob, I'm going to change your name. Your name, instead of Jacob, is now Israel. And we get this sense, oh, so whoever this is, it's higher than a patriarch, right? It's, he's more important, he's more powerful than Jacob. Most theologians believe that that was a pre-incarnate son of God wrestling with Jacob. He was learning a lesson there 
about wrestling with God. Now, the demon had, uh, we get this, Luke has kind of told the, the story backwards a little bit in terms of the conversation. But the demon had shouted out, Jesus, I know who you are. You're the, the Son of God. And that seems like a strange thing to us. We're like, wow, you wouldn't think he'd want to do that, right? Uh, like, wouldn't they want to, like, try and convince people he's someone else or, you know, some other devious plan? And, but apparently what they're trying to do is, is say, uh, hey, I know who you are. I'll, I'll claim your name. I'll say that, you know, and trying to get a little power and a little leverage. And, of course, it's futile. It, it's not going to work. Instead, what we have is Jesus then asking the demon's name, and the demon gives it up, admitting that he's in submission to who Jesus is. A legion is either the commander of all of these demons or the name of the structure there, the organization. And legion, uh, a legion for, for Roman soldiers was 6,000 strong, a lot of soldiers, a lot of organization, a lot of strength. Basically, it was considered a unit that you could take somewhere and accomplish anything Rome wanted to have happen. And so this group of demons apparently went by that name to, to try and convey, we're strong, we can take care, you know, we're in charge here, we're powerful in this man's life, and they had been for many, many days. The pigs, what's going on with the pigs? Well, the pigs represent to us that indeed this was a Gentile area of the countryside, a Gentile population, and then there, was all, there were also Jewish people living there, but, but the disciples may have even been a little skeptical of them. You were considered maybe living in a compromised situation to, to live in an area like that. I mean, think about it. Every morning you wake up and you can smell bacon cooking all over the place, right? How do you live in a place like that? So I don't know. Here's some, some Jewish guys. They cross the lake and they're like, uh, these are probably bacon eaters. You know, look at all those pigs. And it's an unclean thing, you know. They're, they're trying to follow the, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament law still at this point. They weren't allowed to do that. So kind of suspicious thing, and, and pigs are unclean. But, but here they are on the countryside. Now, in Matthew, Matthew also records the story, and he adds one little detail that we don't get from Luke. When the demons said, please don't, well, they didn't say please. Don't torture us. <laughs> they probably weren't, like, hadn't learned their please and thank yous. But anyway, don't torture us. Matthew adds that they said, before our time. Before our time. Because the demons understand what's coming. They understand that they will end up in the abyss. They're just pleading that it won't be today. And so they come up with this thing. Let us just go into the pigs right? They're just looking for an escape, anything to get out of there without going to the abyss or the place of final judgment. And Jesus' action acknowledges that, in fact, it isn't the time. And we get that. We understand that. This isn't the day of judgment either, unless something changes really dramatically here soon. This is the day of the Lord. This is the day, not the day of the Lord, the day of salvation, this is the day the Lord has made for people to respond to the gospel, as was this day. It wasn't time for final judgment. The pigs are a strange thing, but they do demonstrate a couple things really clearly for us. First of all, they illustrate just as if we needed any more evidence, but they illustrate for us how absolutely destructive the kingdom of darkness is as they tumble over a cliff and into the sea. 
It also illustrates for us, or for the disciples especially, and the people around them, the demons are really gone from this man's life. Look at, you could see it. You can't see demons, but look at the effect. They rushed into the pigs, and the pigs rushed over a cliff. The story continues, verse 34. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. He leaves. I don't know how long he was there. An hour? Ten minutes? Two hours? Wow. Now, a few weeks ago, just in the last chapter, we found Jesus telling the disciples a, a story so that they would understand before they got involved any more in, in gospel ministry to just make it clear to them that not everyone was going to respond right? It was the parable of the sower or the soils. And here, here was a, an example of that parable. Here was a, a miracle of redemption as graphic and a, as marvelous as you would ever see. And the people didn't like it. Isn't that astounding? They were not comfortable with it. Now, they were afraid, Luke says, and, and uh, we'll talk about some of the things they were afraid of in just a couple minutes. But they reject Jesus. They actually ask him to go away. Here he crosses the lake through a storm, sets his foot on the beach, saves one individual, and is rejected. And yet, he does not totally reject them. To our knowledge, he never returns to this region. Isn't that amazing? He's there for all of 10 minutes. But watch this. Watch the relentlessness of God's grace, right? Absolutely shoved back. Like, no, God, we don't want you around here. We're not comfortable with that. We're, we're afraid of you. And yet, watch the grace. It says, the man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. There it is. There's God's plan. Now, I know you all don't know a lot of Greek words, but I got a test for you. When Jesus said, return home, what Greek word did he use? Thank you. See, you all are Greek scholars. Oikos, return to your oikos and tell how much God has done for you. This region has rejected Jesus outright, but Jesus has made an attack. He has assaulted the beach, created one missionary, and sent him back among them and left. Not going back, but not really leaving either. <laughs> you have to love God's grace, right? Just we, we shove God away. And he's like, yeah, but I'm coming back. Right back at you. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Now, 
you have to feel a little, I mean, on the first reading, you feel a little bad for this guy, don't you? Jesus, uh, you know, he's like sitting at Jesus' feet, and he's like, please, can I come with you? You just remember being a kid, you know, and your parents are going somewhere, and you're like, please, can I come with you? Don't leave me with that babysitter. You know, he's looking at these people who are all angry and like, you know, they're, well, they're mad about the pigs, all this stuff. And he's like, don't make me stay with these people. They chained me up, right? They, they sent me out in the tombs. And, and Jesus is like, nope, can't come with me. And it almost feels a little harsh, but you see, it's not. This is the same thing he would say to, well, the same thing he has said to you and to me. No, you can't follow me around. You can't have a, a ride on the boat. Why is that? Because this is God's plan. His, his plan is to make disciples of all nations, not to make apostles of all nations. The twelve would follow him every step. And the, and the apostles, of course, were disciples first, but he didn't have a plan to make everyone an apostle, and, and in a couple of weeks we'll actually look at how that's true. But he says to him, you know, go tell what God has done. And we see here Luke doing this great thing, again, about the identity of Jesus. But he goes and tells how much Jesus had done. That's because what God has done is what Jesus has done, and what Jesus has done is what God has done. What a beautiful story of redemption a picture of what it is to be transferred, to be rescued out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. All right, for a few minutes here, let's think about some of those values, those conflicting values. The first values we'd look at is the difference between the peace in the kingdom of light and the chaos in the kingdom of darkness. Now, the people I have uh, worked with over the years in ministry who have... uh, who have really faced uh, the, the trouble of being afflicted by, by some connections to demons. I'll tell you something they have in common. Their life is usually in turmoil. They face a lot of crises. They, live, they tend to live at a, at a frantic kind of pace, and they have an uneasiness about many, many things that you don't even think twice about. For example, coming in here to just sit down and be in a worship service it is very uneasy for someone who is troubled by demons. We see this in the man in our story. He hadn't worn clothes, hadn't lived in a house, he was shouting at the top of his voice, he's screaming. You know, they haven't even been introduced, and this guy is screaming at Jesus. And then by the end of the story, look at what we're seeing. We're seeing him sit at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. Again, I would say, think about this if this was your brother, your son, and now you see him in his right mind. (sighs) Wow. All those fears, all that pain, all those terrible things you've seen and experienced, it's gone. What a perfect picture of salvation from a lifestyle completely out of control to sitting peacefully at Jesus' feet. Think for a moment about some of the the things he has gained within the peace that he now has sitting at Jesus' feet. First of all, of course, he's free from the demons. (laughs) Get a top of the list, right, for him. He has the, the peace 
of being accepted by God. He's sitting at Jesus' feet, right? Ever wanted to do that? He has freedom now to live for his rescuer, his savior, his king, to live for Jesus. His life, instead of wandering purposely and aimlessly and destructively, he now can live his life with purpose and meaning. And he has the order. He has the order from which he could pursue it in a healthy way. What a great thing. Colossians chapter 3 says to us, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. I tell you the truth, I think a lot of times when I've read this in the past, I just thought it was kind of a nice verse, like God's trying to help me out. You know, wouldn't you be a lot happier if you lived at peace? So let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And I think, you know, that's, that's kind of true, but that's such an incomplete picture. There's so much more at stake here. What I think this verse is saying, see, it's, it's, it's ruling. What Christ has done should govern my heart. Think again the man had, had gained all of those wonderful things, but think as well what he didn't have. In that moment that he's sitting at, at Jesus' feet and, he, and, and Jesus saying, you got to go home, you got to go back to those people, you know, those people, <laughs> the ones that chained you up, you got to go back to those people. He, he, does he have a place to live? I don't know. Does he know? I'm not sure. How long has he been gone? Does he have a job, a way to, to uh, have a meal that night? Don't know. Will he be restored? Now, he's being sent back to his family, but you know how families are. Will they accept him? Will he be restored to his family? He's going to go try, but does he know how it'll go? You know better than that, right? You can't be certain how it'll go. He's going home at Christmas. How is it going to go this year? Don't know. Not real hopeful, right? It's exactly like that. He doesn't know how it'll go. Will he have friends? Will he be accepted in this community? Yes, he's composed and in control, but, I mean, they've been terrified of this guy. How will it go? Think of all the things he doesn't have. And none of these were guaranteed in his salvation. Just as so many things are not guaranteed to you and I as well. So, we let what Christ has established, what he has done, what he has promised to rule our hearts. Let that rule your hearts. Don't let the trouble that the kingdom of darkness creates in our world and all around you, don't let the newspaper rule your heart. I'm not saying don't read the newspaper. I'm just saying don't let that rule your heart. Let, the, let what Christ has done rule your heart. Let the peace of Christ do that. Are you allowing something else to rule your heart? It's a dangerous place. It's a destructive place. Let Christ have that role. All right. Then fear versus fear. I know this really sounds like you don't have very many good options in this contrast, but, but stick with me here for a moment. Verse 29. We saw that the man had been chained, right? That he had broken his chains. Again, what that one commentator had said, he was both frightening and fearful. People lived in fear of this man and what Satan was able to do through him. And you know what? That's understandable. I think if we saw him, we'd be a little scared. We'd be a little frightened. It's understandable. And in uh, verse 35 right? They, they witnessed the effect, or they witnessed the power, Jesus' power, and they were scared of that. And that's understandable. The power of God is a little frightening. 
right? And, and we saw that last week. Just, just a few hours before, the night before, in the middle of the storm, right? Jesus calms the storm. And so the, the, the disciples are not afraid of the storm anymore, but, but they're afraid. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? Seeing, seeing God wield his power is a fear-producing thing. The disciples had the same response as these people. But then verse 35, right? They were overcome with fear, and so they asked Jesus to leave. Now, here's a different kind of fear. Here's a whole other level of fear. See, that's not understandable. That's incomprehensible. See, what we're seeing in the, in the contrast between, between the story of the storm and the fear the disciples experienced and the fear that these people are experiencing is the difference between fear of God that leads us to trust Him and the fear of circumstance and the fear of what God might require of us and the fear of all kinds of, I don't know, what we imagine when we imagine Him getting in the way of our lives. Maybe these people were mad about losing the pigs. Maybe they looked at this man, now free and and sitting at Jesus' feet, and thought, well, I wonder what he's going to require of me if we let him hang around here. And they were afraid, and they distanced themselves. And I think, oh, such foolish people. And then I have to admit, I wonder, do we do the same thing? Do we ever distance ourselves from Jesus? Maybe he presents us with some truth that we are not sure we like, or some part of his, his will, and we think, you know, a little space, please, Jesus. Just a little space. Don't go too far. Just a little, a little space. You know, I'll see you Sunday, right? <laughs> or, or some sin he asks us to leave, and we're like, you know, again, not so sure. That's what these people did. And it's, and it's not a good thing when you realize there's only the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. You don't want to distance yourself from Jesus. It's the fear of the Lord that leads us to trust him that you want to choose, not the fear of what he might do or mess up in your life. And then the last one, connection versus isolation. Now, something else I have observed in the, in the lives of, of people who are really struggling with the kingdom of darkness, there is, there is at least in, in my experience, a, a very common strategy. It's been universal so far. There is a strategy of, of demons when they can really impact someone's life. They want to... Uh, they make all the attempts they can to, to distance that individual from at least three things. The first one is prayer. Makes sense, right? If you're trying to keep someone in the kingdom of darkness and away from the kingdom of light, you don't want them praying. That wouldn't be good having them talk to God, right? So they really make prayer difficult. And then they try and keep them away from the word of God. That makes sense. They're peddling falsehood and lies. So what do I want him doing, spending time thinking about truth? That's a dangerous thing if you're trying to promote the kingdom of darkness. And those things make sense to me. Prayer and the word. There's a third thing 
that demons will try and keep someone away from when they really have an attachment to him. And this is the one that surprises me. You. God's people. They like to isolate them from God's people. See, I get the first two. Prayer is powerful. The Word of God is powerful. But us? Come on. What's the harm of letting him come around us? The harm is enormous. Apparently, they understand it that way. Because here, someone might encourage them. Someone here might have the audacity to be compassionate or or pray for them or or demonstrate the gospel for them in some tangible way that might be convincing. You get the idea. This is a dangerous place for the kingdom of darkness. Now, we saw that in the man's life. He'd not lived in a house and been driven to solitary places. All right, another test, another exam, another Greek test. What Greek word did he use when he said the man had not lived in a house? Oikos. So, you know, is a, is a structure a part of that view? Maybe, but it's really the minor part. The, the real emphasis is relationships. He had not lived in an oikos for a long time, right? He had not had relationships. He had not been with his family. He had not had friends. He would not had a neighbor check up on him. He would not been a part of a group. He had no grow group. He didn't have a, a, a synagogue that he was going to. He had tombs of dead people who weren't actually even there. That's all he had. He hadn't lived in an oikos. And that's why Jesus says, return to those people. Stop being isolated. You need to get back with those people. See, and that's God's plan for our relational network as well. And he gives them this instruction. Tell how much God has done for you. A couple things happen when we do that. When we go to our oikos, the people closest to us in our life, and we tell them what God has done in our lives, Two results happen. If we're speaking to someone who happens to still belong to the kingdom of darkness, evangelism happens. And if we're speaking to someone who belongs to the kingdom of light, fellowship happens. Because the response is, that's awesome, let's praise God. And you get these two really important, wonderful things that are a part of God's plan. Connection versus isolation. I'm not talking about being the outgoing person or, or that alone time is a bad idea. It's none of that. The question really is, are there places in your life where you tend to isolate yourself that God has said, I want you to share that, to live that out with other people who know me and can love you and pray for you and support you? That would be the point for this man and for us. Ephesians Five said, you have to choose. You belong to the kingdom of light, that's a good thing. Now you have to choose to live out the values of the kingdom of light. Things like goodness, righteousness, and truth. Fear of the Lord that leads to the peace with God and peace from God and a connection with God's people. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this story. What an amazing day 
it would have been to, uh, to see that. And thank you for saving that man. Thank you for, for rescuing him in such a dramatic way. And yet the truth is you have, you have rescued us in an equally dramatic way. It may not have looked like it on the outside, but internally and spiritually it took every bit as much to rescue us and, and draw us into the kingdom of your Son. Or to offer to us today, if, if we have not entered the kingdom of light yet today, to offer that to us. Thank you that that offer stands for every person in this room. Before leaving today, you, you would allow every one of us to have entered that kingdom merely by trusting you and, and, and telling you we want to trust you and the cross of Christ. Thank you, Father, for your kingdom. We pray that we would be able to uh, live within it, to latch on to its values, to live like we belong to it, and to be the light you've intended. In Jesus' name, amen.